1: Our world is full of the unexplainable, and if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. Our children are often seen as extensions of ourselves. They embody the best and the worst of us learning by watching how we navigate the world. In a way, we program them like we would a computer, hoping they do what we tell them to do with as little friction as possible. We do our best to instill in them proper values, a solid work ethic, and the drive to pursue their dreams. Children really are the future, and for Pierre-Jacques Droz, truer words have never been spoken. Pierre made watches and elaborate mechanical objects. His skills were unmatched and the pieces he created were the most precise and beautiful things a person could own. He built music boxes featuring ornate songbirds tweeting and chirping just like the real thing, their wings fluttering along in tones of gold and emerald. He invented new ways for people to wind their watches by simply using the motion of their bodies. Along with his son, Henri-Louis, and his partner, Frédéric, Pierre's talents were known throughout Paris. However, Pierre's watches were expensive, both to make and to own, and at some point, the people with enough money to purchase them lost interest. Business all but dried up for poor Pierre. So he got an idea. The watch company had always been a family business, and if he was going to turn things around to boost sales, he'd have to keep it that way so he employed his three other children to demonstrate their father's handiwork in the neighboring cities and towns. One son worked as a draftsman and drew portraits and other pictures to illustrate the precision of his father's creations. Another son wrote for a living and showed off his impeccable penmanship to wealthy elites, comparing his artistic talents to those of his father. And Pierre's daughter played a piano-like instrument called a harmonium, She serenaded crowds across Europe with skills she'd learned from Pierre herself. And the children's efforts proved successful. People came from all over the world to see them perform and soon understood why Pierre's watches had been so popular and so expensive. In fact, you can still see his children perform today if you travel to Switzerland. They're kept behind glass at the Museum of Art and History in Neuchâtel. No, they're not held captive or anything. They're just too old to tour the way they used to. After all, they were born in the late 1700s. As you've probably figured out, Pierre's children weren't actually his children, although I'm sure he thought of them that way. They were called automata. Androids developed using the horological technologies that had powered his music boxes and watches. Designed to look like small children, the mechanisms within their frames allowed them to move their arms and hands with incredible precision. When wound up, they dazzled audiences. Nothing so advanced had ever been created. Charles Babbage's analytical engine wouldn't be developed for another 70 years, and it would clearly be designed to look and function as a computer. But not Pierre's automata. They were made to look human, to function like we do, and to propose the question what if the technology we had available could be used to make our lives easier? It's a question we still ask ourselves now as artificial intelligence starts to behave less like a computer and more like us. But Pierre-Jacques Droz had been pondering it long before, and his work speaks volumes about where he saw it all leading. The draftsman in particular was quite the conversation piece. During a visit to Marie-Antoinette, The boyish automaton was supposed to sketch a portrait of the Queen. With a lead holder poised between its metallic fingers over a sheet of paper, Pierre set it to work. However, the cams that regulated the movement of the robot's arms hadn't been adjusted properly, and instead of sketching a likeness of the Queen's face, it drew something less flattering. The picture of a dog. It was okay, though. Marie didn't lose her head over it or anything, Instead, the incident reinforced Pierre's popularity with the French nobility, and solidified his reputation all over the world. He lives on today in the company bearing his name, which still produces timepieces for those who can afford them. And Pierre's small wonders live on as well, enchanting museum-goers who want a glimpse into the future, as predicted by the past.
0: Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
1: Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. Inventors are often known to be a bit eccentric. They spend years searching for a solution to a problem that could change their lives or the world. It's a profession of obsession, and it can yield miraculous contributions to society. However, some inventions aren't quite ready for the world, as was the case for John Andrews from Pennsylvania. John had been sitting on a magic pill of sorts. He hadn't really shared it with the rest of the world yet, but in 1917, as the United States was preparing to enter the First World War, he thought it was time. He drove to the Brooklyn Navy Yard, toting a small bag with powder inside, and asked to speak with Commander Earl Jessup. I know anyone trying something like that today wouldn't make it past the front gate, but times were different back then. Upon entry to the yard, John asked the commander for a bucket of salt water and an empty can. His demonstration was about to begin. He carried the two items to his trunk and a few minutes later returned with a can full of water and the bucket now empty. The powder in his bag was gone. John then walked over to a boat bobbing in the water nearby. Its fuel tank was empty and he filled it with the contents of the can as well as an additional half-gallon of water he started the engine. Instead of sputtering and choking like any other engine would when flooded with something other than gasoline, the boat's motor revved to life. It ran until it had used up all the fuel John had poured into it. The commander was more than impressed. He was baffled. Since he hadn't seen what John had done behind the car, he thought perhaps the inventor had dumped the bucket of water out and replaced it with real gas instead. Worried he might be in the presence of a skilled con artist, he invited John back the next day for another demonstration. This time, he stuck him in a room with only one door and no way of disposing of any liquid, no sinks on the wall or drains in the floor. They brought him another bucket of salt water and an empty can. When John came back out, he handed the commander the can, now full of liquid just like the day before. And just like the day before, they poured it into an empty fuel tank and started the engine without fail. The commander was convinced. John Andrews had created something that could turn the tide of war for the Allies and make millions, maybe billions of dollars for himself and the United States government. However, the commander's higher-ups needed some time to think. What this stranger had presented to them was indeed a miracle of modern science. It was also highly suspect. They dismissed John from the yard and told him to wait at home until they called on him again. A few days later, they asked him to come back. He never showed up. The Navy sent officers out to his house to check on him and found the home's interior to be a wreck. Papers were strewn everywhere, furniture had been knocked over, and it looked as if there had been a struggle. It was thought that John might have been abducted, perhaps for the formula to his wonder powder. But he hadn't been kidnapped. He'd left in a hurry for England, where it was discovered he was talking to the British government about his invention. And thanks to John's hard work, the world has now weaned itself off of fossil fuels in favor of a more sustainable power source in our motor vehicles. No, just kidding. Nothing ever came from John Andrews' water fuel. He traveled back across the ocean and made a home for himself in Canada. But his incredible invention never made it past the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Other claims of a gasoline pill have circulated over the years, and the stories often end the same way. The inventor would have made millions and changed the world if the government and the oil industry hadn't made them disappear. We may never know the truth about what happened to John Andrews' powder. Scientists have claimed the existence of such a substance is chemically impossible, but new iterations keep popping up. In the 1980s, a man in China claimed to have a liquid he could add to water that would convert it into fuel. A South Indian man in the mid-90s also claimed to possess such a formula. All of them dried up as quickly as they were announced. It seems such a lofty promise to turn water into fuel. Just can't help but run out of gas.